Hello, I'm Alec Wilkinson and this is episode five of Sailing Uncovered, the show that brings you the big names, the future talent and hot topics from the world of sailing. The good news is that we are now on iTunes as well as YouTube, Facebook and Podbean.com, but more on that later uh, because this show is a Vendée Globe special and we have loads to talk about and some very special guests as well. The Vendée Globe sets off on the 6th of November from uh, Les Sables d'Olonne on the west coast of France. It's known as the Everest of sailing. Let me just try and explain why. I mean, it's quite simple, really. First of all, it's a solo race around the world. It's non-stop. No help is allowed at all. And the current record is 78 days. So that's about, what, two and a half months at sea on your Todd. So it takes a very special kind of person. You might say they have to be a little bit crazy. Well, you can make your own minds up because joining me now is a lady who I've read is descended from a Maltese sea captain. True or not doesn't matter because we like the story. Dika Fari, welcome to the show. Was he a Maltese sea captain? Well, I believe so. But with a surname like Kafari, there's got to be some history in there. And I believe he saved a, a town under siege and broke the garrison and saved all the people. And the name over time has been changed and bastardised down to Kafari. So from El Kafar, I became Kafari. And there's got to be a reason why there's some salty blood in me, that's uh, for sure. I thought you were like me, half Italian, but just had a name to prove it. OK. Um, now, when I started uh, reporting on sailing a few years ago now, my dear auntie Diana, bless her, got off uh, a fine for driving the wrong way up a one-way street by telling the policeman that she thought it was okay because she'd reversed up the road. So you can imagine my astonishment when I read in my early days of reporting on sailing that a woman called Dee Kafari had gone all the way round the world the wrong way and didn't just get away with it, got an MBE for it. So steep learning curve for me. Uh, but that achievement, D, must seem a long time ago now. It does. Sadly, it does. But uh, just to reassure everybody, I didn't reverse my way around the world. I did not get a sore neck. It was meant to happen, even though the man at Cape Horn Radio asked me if I was lost when I said that my last port of call was Portsmouth and my next port of call was going to be Portsmouth. <laughs> well, that was, um, well, in 2006, two years later, you set off the other way. So following the prevailing winds and currents, which is the right way round. Um, and that was in the Vendée Globe and you came sixth. So what's the enduring memory that always comes to mind first when, you know, the Vendée is mentioned? It's, it's somewhere... No matter whether, you know, I think back to that time when I was a competitor or even four years ago when I went down as a spectator for the following edition, you become part of this very unique, special family. And it is it holds such a huge part of you emotionally to see it all and to be part of it. And I, I probably wouldn't be anywhere else every four years when this event happens. So, you know, I'm so delighted to be going back to Les Abdelon waving off those sailors and just soaking in that atmosphere that's so special. I think the memory that really sticks in my head is just the volume of support you get from the general public. It feels like the whole of France comes to this tiny seaside village of Les Abdelon to see these boats set off to head round the world. And then they all turn up no matter what time of day or night that the few that do cross the finish line 
um, get when they arrive in. And it was amazing. And I think as far as the sailors are concerned, because obviously, as you said, I went on this crazy adventure the wrong way around the world. When I got to step up to the level of racing of the Vendée Globe, I was stood shoulder to shoulder with my peers, people that I read about in magazines and Michel Desjoyeaux, the professor and the ultimate winner of that edition, he sent me an email on our way south in the Atlantic uh, during our first couple of weeks. And he just sent me an email saying, don't forget to turn left. <laughs> and I was just so, so pleased that he even knew who I was, let alone the fact that he had been cheeky enough to remind me to go the right way around the world. But uh, there's definitely a reason why everyone goes the right way. It's a lot of fun. It's fast, exciting. It's furious. It's what the boats are designed for, but it also makes it on the edge. And that's the thrill as a sailor. And the reason, sadly, why not all the people who cross the start line get to cross the finish line. Yeah, and it is a high percentage, isn't it? Some, sometimes it's up to, what, 40 50% of the fleet that doesn't make it to to the finish line. Um, as you've said, you're going to be there. I'm going to be there. We're both commentating live on the start of the race again this year. Uh, and we'll tell you how and where you can watch it in, in just a while. But I always feel as we commentate, as we talk about those that last boat disappearing into the distance, I always feel a sense of foreboding because the race is as much a battle of survival, isn't it, as it is a sporting event. Definitely. It's a war of attrition and it, it's probably one of the longest intense sporting events ever because it, it's that clock starts on that Sunday afternoon at lunchtime and it doesn't actually finish until you get your 27,000 miles around the world and you cross that finish line. And it's not just the other boats that you're competing against. It's it's a lot of mind over matter. It's psychological, it's emotional, it's physical You've got to keep your boat in one piece. You've got to battle whatever the weather throws at you, whatever the oceans throw at you. And I think it's because it's that unknown and you can't control those elements that it is that you you wish them farewell and you just cross your fingers for fast and safe sailing because you just don't know what's around the corner, which is why that attrition rate is so high. And I should say that the race lasts... You know, around three months, 78 days is, is the record, uh, which was set in the last event by, by the winner. Um, so even if you're tuning in in mid-December or even in early January, this podcast is still relevant. Um, that is how long these guys are out at sea. And I think this year's race could potentially be one of the most exciting yet because we've got 29 skippers from nine different countries, uh, some real characters amongst them, uh, a real mix of young and old. There are rookies, there are experienced sailors and a really mixed fleet of boats, including, for the first time, foiling boats. I know, and I think... One of the elements that draws people into this is not just that human story, but the number of races within a race. So you've got those that have been before, those that have never been before, the older generation that are on an adventure, shall we say. There's then the foiling boats, the non-foiling boats, and then the older generation boats. So there really is a complete mix-up, and it's going to take a while for them to find their feet and establish 
who their immediate competition is apart from the obvious front runners that we've got from leaving the dock. Okay, so let's have a look at the skippers then. Of the 29, um, which stand out for you? Um, Nationality-wise, by the way, we've got lots of French. This is very much a French-flavoured race, starting and finishing in the Vendée, but we've got a New Zealander, we've got an American, an Irishman, a Dutch, a Hungarian, a Brit. Um, So... A very international race. Which ones stand out for you? Well, I have to say that the internationality of this edition of the race is great. Uh, Six nationalities, as you say. But what is really, really sad this year is the fact that it's an all-male lineup, And it's the first time in about the last four editions that that's ever happened. So I think that's a sadness for the race. But I know that a lot of previous female sailors that have done this race will be in Les Abdelon to wave them off. So we're there with them in spirit, if not in body. And I think Vendée 2020 will see a very different lineup. And I think you'll have quite a big push of a lot of girls. Into Do you think one. it's a coincidence, though? It's just one of those things because Sam Davis, um, uh, British sailor, took part um, last time. You were in the previous one to that. Um, do you think it's just one of those things that there happen to be 29 male sailors? I think um, it's a little bit to do with timing that um, a lot of the potential female sailors that could have done it were on the Volvo Ocean Race with Team SCA and timing of when that finished and the time scale to get funds and a boat and get organised for this Vendée was just a little bit too short. Um, There'll and be a lot of, a lot of female sailors on the, uh, on the Volvo again the next next time weren't they in 2017 well fingers crossed with the recent rule change definitely but i i think what's very positive for the vendee glowing forwards is that there were five girls on the figaro and we've seen a lot of these guys that are sailing in this edition of the race come through from the figaro um through that solo um racing kind of progression up to the Vendée so if there's five girls on the Figaro this year then hopefully we'll see at least three of them um, looking to the Vendée in the future. Okay so of the fleet that we have leaving on the 6th of November um, let's pick out some potential favourites. What about Jean-Pierre Dick? This is going to be his fourth uh, which is unbelievable his fourth Vendée Globe. I know, and I love him, and he is the absolute champion at double-handed sailing. But he is still yet to pull it off solo. So he's got a new boat, he's got the foiling technology, he's done a lot of work with it and got a great podium finish on the transatlantic this year earlier. But he's still got to pull it off on a Vendée Globe. But I really hope that, you know, luck is on his side this time. I think... um, he needs to kind of get over this only double-handed champions and uh, make sure he does it solo, I think. Yes. It may be his time to shine. Never made the um, podium in the in the Vendée, but uh, a real fight, as you say. Uh, what about another Frenchman, Armel Leclerc? Uh, this will be his third attempt at the Vendée. Well, always the bridesmaid and never been the bride. So he's got two second place finishes. He is the race favourite, hands down, I think. He had the first foiling boat in action. So he's got loads of confidence in his boat. He's been through all those trials and errors where he's had to retire and fix things and adapt things. So he's like really confident with his boat. He's had two second places, so he knows what it takes. And, you know, could be third time lucky. Now, the Britain Alex Thompson He's had a few attempts at the Vendée. He's got a brand new Hugo Boss boat. Uh, 
what do you make of his chances? Well, wouldn't it be nice for me to sit here and say, oh, we could have a British winner, but I sadly can't put my money where my mouth is on that this year. The problem for Alex is he's gone new technology, he's got foiling boat, a brand new boat, but he just hasn't had the chance to put the miles on the boat. So he's got no, he's not setting off with a lot of confidence, I don't think, in his boat. And Alex is an all or nothing sailor. You know, he pushes hard and fast. And I'm just not sure he's got the the hours behind him and the miles behind him on this boat to have the confidence to finish a Vendée in it. Yeah, and I guess part of being a good Vendée sailor is knowing how to protect your boat. It is, and, and it's having the confidence in the boat to know where those limits are. You know, he had a podium finish, and that was in a race where he adapted a tried and tested boat. And I think with it all being new all the time... He's had a lot of time of in the shed working up things and not enough time on balance out on the water testing it to get the confidence now, you need. Uh, all the sailors we've mentioned so far are in the new type of foiling boat. Um, one guy who's not is uh, Vincent Ryu, uh, another Frenchman. This will be, again, his fourth attempt at the Vendée, um, known as the Swiss Army Knife of Sailing because he's a real all-rounder. Um, what are his chances in an older boat uh, on his fourth attempt at the age of 44? So I think he's really interesting and he's one of my favourites if the out-and-out new generation foiling boats don't make it round the world because it's still quite unknown. He's got a tried and tested boat that he's put adaptions and some modifications on. His boat is lighter than the others, is a little narrower, so his power-to-weight ratio is much easier. So he's very confident that it's quite an easy boat to sail. He's very confident in his own ability, being a previous winner, that I think he's probably more relaxed than some of the others will be and probably knows where the limits are a little easier. I think another person that is very similar to that is Jan Elias as well. He's had previous editions, um, edition of the race in 2008, where he was taken off the boat injured when he was sponsored by Generali. That was quite an injury. It was a broken femur, wasn't it? That's right. You know, it, it was it was horrendous, um, south of Australia. Um, but he's got the former Safran as his boat. So again, a tried and tested boat that was fast in its first gen- incarnation. And he's put some adaptions on it, but he hasn't gone to the extreme foiling So his confidence levels in what the boat can do and how to sail it are quite high. So it'd be really interesting to see how those two get on. They're kind of my favourite non-foiling boats. Okay, let's let's look at the boats then. Um, For for people who don't follow, you know, the Vendée and and boat building and boat development in in, in any great detail, um, let's just um, try and explain uh, how this works. So we've always had very fast boats taking part in the Vendée. It is a race after all. Um, but this time, for the very first time, that technology that uh, we've been watching in the America's Cup, where the boat rises up on foils so that it's basically skimming across the top of the water, that's now been introduced to monohulls in the Vendée. What difference do you think that's going to make? increase in power and it's giving them an increase in speed but what's interesting in the development of it it's been quite a a small angle to the wind that this has been beneficial and over time they've adapted and grown that angle so as soon as they're off the wind these foils lift them up take them off and they probably increase the boat speed by two or three knots at times 
The result of that is a noise that is absolutely insane. You'll probably find that if you ask the sailors what's on their list of must-haves on the boat for this trip around the world, they're all going to say noise-cancelling headphones because the intensity of this noise, it's like a white noise torture. It's quite incredible. But where they don't have the advantage is where those wind angles aren't preferable for the foiling to work. And I think that's where a boat that isn't reliant on the foils can, you know, be tortoise and a hare scenario they could be slow and steady and still make it so where what are the areas is is it just uh downwind that these foils work is it down in the southern ocean but i don't know not in the atlantic on the way down uh, what areas will it will, will we see them foiling so the foils really start to take off on a reach and originally it was quite a narrow angle there when the wind's just in on the beam but then they grew that to be really good downwind as well. So you've got from the wind is on your beam to behind you where the foils can have effect. And each boat will have a slightly different sweet spot. So that's when you see the tactics come in so that they line themselves up to the weather system to get the best benefit for how their boat sails. That's why if you have experience and confidence in your boat, you know exactly where you want to be in relation to the weather. And that gives you an advantage. And I think the downside is when they head, if they survive the Southern Ocean, they will have a clear advantage over the rest of the fleet. And the hard bit then will be that big slog back up the Atlantic from Cape Horn, uh, from when they're in the south and they come back up and they have to go upwind up the Atlantic. That's when uh, the advantage isn't going to work for them and that's just a real hard battle. Could we end up seeing, uh, just presuming that no one suffers breakages, we could see the... I think it's six foiling boats in the lead at Cape Horn and then no one else in sight. It's very likely um, just because of the claims that they've been making. I mean, two or three knots over that period of time and that amount of mileage is huge. It's absolutely huge. And I think if they can keep the boats together, they're going to have their own little race and then you'll see the next group come together as a pack around Cape Horn. Can you get even close to describing to the rookies on this next race, and I haven't actually counted them up, but there's a fair handful, if not probably 10, um, who are taking part for the first time. Can you describe to them what to expect? I think it's really interesting. A lot of them have come from the Figaro background. Some have just done a little bit of Class 40. Some have only really done double-handed stuff. So there's a real mixed group in with these rookies, and some of them haven't done that much time on their Open 60, their iMocha 60. So I think it's the two things they probably aren't prepared for is just the length of time and that intensity that they're going to spend on their own 24 hours a day. Because they've done a race for like a couple of weeks, but we're talking a couple of months here. And, and I'm fascinated it... by the psychology of being out there on your own for three months. I mean, do you go a little bit gaga? Well, everyone reacts differently and everyone gets a thrill out of a different aspect of it. When I came into the Vendée Globe, I'd literally, a couple of years before, been around the world what's considered the wrong way, as you said, and that was twice as long. So I'd come from spending six months on a boat on my own that, to me, the Vendée Globe seemed really easy because it was going to be three months. So for me, I considered it a relatively short amount of time and I was really looking forward to going out there and sailing faster and stuff like that and I think if you haven't spent more than a couple of weeks on your own offshore 
that comes as a bit of a shock and your lowest point is normally when you're still in the cold wet harsh environment of the southern ocean and you've still got half the world to go so i think that's going to be a little bit of a shock for them to get used to the other thing is this war of attrition the unknown something is going to happen to your boat that you are going to have to find the resources to fix yourself otherwise your race is over and you become you know quite a Mr MacGyver type person where you do anything you can to keep your boat racing and I think some of them will be stretching themselves to make sure that they can meet those demands and keep themselves on the racetrack. I mentioned in the introduction that it is an unaided uh, race which means that the guy on board has to not just sail the boat not just uh, be a mechanic uh, but he also has to work out his own tactics. He has to uh, be a weather forecaster, um, a navigator. He does it absolutely all. Um, but what sort of contact do they have with shore and where with their team on shore, especially in these days of you know social media? Um, they all have sponsors. They'll all be doing interviews and satellite uh, connections. So what, what exactly does unaided mean and how much contact will they have? Well, unaided is exactly that. Nobody can advise you to the weather. Nobody could tell you what route to take. Nobody can give you weather information. But you can tell your story. So there's, um, you write a report to the race control so they know you're okay. You do your chats with the, with the team so that you know you get your little interviews out. You can send videos, photos, um, diaries off, and you can talk to people. There's a satellite phone, and you can. Uh, obviously receive in emails so if you have a technical issue your shore team that knows your boat inside out and backwards and have helped you prepare for months for this race can give you advice and tell you what to do because they know what stores and supplies you have on board but ultimately you still have to translate that information into action and make it happen and do it and it's a, it's an honesty sport sailing you know we all sign a declaration saying that we haven't infringed the rules at all so the weather is controlled to the extent that you go to a one-stop shop and get all the information that's available and you don't go anywhere else. Now, they can test it if they want to. They can go and look at your log of where you've been online and have a look. But, you know, to be honest, if you're in at this level, mm. you're in it for the purity of the sport and you wouldn't okay. think about it. So much it. for being solo. Let's just close our eyes a moment. Imagine that... You've set off on the Vanda, you find a stowaway. The race is non-stop, so you can't set them down anywhere. So two questions to you, Dee. Who would you be happy to carry around the world for three months? And who would you not want to share your boat with? <laughs> now, this makes me laugh because I could answer it in so many ways. I'm sure. <laughs> Having agreed that I am committing to this solo, and this is a surprise... I think I wouldn't want a good sailor on board because I've committed to do the sailing myself. So therefore, because if I was going to go, oh, I'll have some help sailing, then I would have Loic Perron, the Jedi master himself, because they're, all he touches turns to gold and I could learn so much from him. But I've decided I'm going to do this solo. So I want somebody who's fascinating to spend potentially three months with. And I thought, do I learn something from somebody very knowledgeable or do I get myself entertained? <laughs> and I thought, 
Well, you know, it's quite nice. You know, I listen to music and uh, it's quite a nice distraction. And I think if you're working really hard, you know, I could go for a psychologist and like learn about myself and always be in a very good place mentally. But that would be like quite a lot of pressure. And you are meant to enjoy it down there because I actually love my offshore sailing. So I've decided someone like Ollie Murs, so he could like sing to me and we could have our own karaoke jam sessions. And I think he'd be quite cool. entertaining. With any song in particular? Oh, well, you see, my karaoke skills are amazing in the middle of an ocean, uh, mainly because there's no one to actually hear me. So uh, I think in all honesty, I'll, I just go with the flow. I have a very eclectic mix of music depending on the weather and my location. So I think I could be quite flexible. All right. And who would you not want on the, on board? Well, it's interesting because we always say that we miss our friends and family and loved ones. But would I want them there to go through what I go through? And what I what we do is we share, but from a distance. And I don't think I would want my family or my loved ones to go through and endure what we do. So I think if I found my sister or even worse, actually, my partner... As much as it would be lovely to spend that time with them, it would be too much pressure and too much responsibility to keep them safe and not expose them to the hardships that you actually endure oh, when you're out there. to separation. <laughs> the end of, well, there is that the as end well. of so much fun. Let me just run through the route in, in layman's terms. So follow me on this. Correct me if, if I'm wrong. But if you're on the boat, um, so follow me as, as, as the skipper, you leave the west coast of France, you head down the Atlantic, you turn left at Cape, uh, Cape of Good Hope, then you go down along the Southern Ocean, and then you pass between the south of Australia and the north of Antarctica. That's where all the icebergs uh, might happen. Uh, you've got to watch out for those. And then you come out round the southern tip of South America, the Cape Horn, and then back up the Atlantic to finish in France. Correct? Correct. Sounds simple, doesn't it? <laughs> Very simple. I can't believe it takes three months. So what I want to know are your top three things that you never leave ashore when setting off around the world or on a long voyage. Have you got a top three? Oh, that's easy. Okay. Well, hang on then. Let's give you a little bit of this and so starting with number three a multi-tool so for me it's a leatherman practical woman at number two less practical never go anywhere offshore without my haribo sweets i'd agree with that one and number one even more impractical but good for morale earl grey tea bags oh very british <laughs> I can't mix with a couple of Wonderful two. stuff. Well, Dee and I will be live on Sunday the 6th of November from 8.45 French time. That's 7.45 GMT, which I gather is very unsociable hours, sort of Eastern American, North American time, around about 3.45 New York. We'll have all the build-up to the start itself. Dee, you've mentioned um, the, the atmosphere and the crowd that turn out at the Sabdolon. It is phenomenal and i think when we last did it in 2012 we had about a hundred thousand people um and then we'll have the start itself from about 12 30 french time which is far more sociable um if you're in the united states because that's 8 30 eastern time uh so a nice sunday morning breakfast with us um do you have any idea where people can watch us 
Oh, well, I think we need to update. So if you follow the, our social media, we'll make sure we update you. But I think it's going to be live on the website and I'm sure it'll be through some other outlets as well. So we will keep everybody updated. And I think uh, on YouTube live as well. But as you say, I'm sure the Vendee Globe website will keep you informed of all that. Dee, thanks very much. I look forward to that. I look forward to it and I'll bring my Haribo sweets and my Earl Grey tea. Perfect. I'll bring some cake. <laughs> and I think we may have started something here. What three things would you take on a round-the-world voyage? Or even if you just head out for the day on the water, what do you always take over and above the usual gear to stay safe? I suppose we're after the luxuries, I guess, that you can't do without. So these are a multi-tool, Harry Bow Sweets and Earl Grey Tea. Join the conversation on the Sailing Uncovered Facebook page and tell us what you would take. As you know, we like to champion upcoming talent here on Sailing Uncovered, and I'm pleased to say that Conrad Manning joins us now. Uh, so we've heard from Dee, who, let's face it, is a legend, but how do you even start to follow in her footsteps? Conrad, I know it's been your dream to compete in a Vande since you were 14. So on a scale of 1 to 10, where are you with, with managing that? With 10 being right on it. and Being ready. Yeah, yeah. Um, I think it's been quite a reflective year because I've been working with uh, Artemis and Whitecap on their Amoka 60 in Southampton and uh, as part of the Vonday 2020 vision project that they had going. And um, we got the opportunity to spend 48 hours sailing the boat with Dee Kafari and the skipper Mikey and as well uh, to learn about pitching to sponsors. So the, uh, the, before this year started, I'd, I would have said I was sort of a, a six, seven but looking back at how much I've learned and probably how much I still have to learn before I have a successful campaign, it'd probably be about a four. Well, it's always good to know where, where you are and what you need to uh, do next. So um, you're 23? Yep, currently 23. So we're talking about being 27 um, if you get a campaign together for the 2020 Vendée. I think Francois Gabar was 28 or 29 when he won it uh, as one of the youngest people to have ever done that. Is it realistic? I think the only thing holding many of us Brits sailors full stop back is finding the, the funding. Um, it's uh, sort of what it all boils down to. So I could do it age of 18 if I could have found, well, five million pounds. Uh, <laughs> but going into a boardroom aged 18, having barely left school and saying, well, I can sail around the world. Uh, can I have your money? It's challenging. Um, so I think it's possible, but we shall, time will tell. Um, and why the Vendée? Why not? I mean, there are plenty of round-the-world races out there. Why, why a race that is almost synonymous with France, really? I think it's more about what the race is about. Um, I was 14 when I sat around the dining room table and told my parents I wanted to sail around the world. Dad was obviously going to do it nonstop and solo. And mum was just like, my God, what's going on here? Uh, and that sort of festered away. That's probably a good way of... Um, matured away in the back of my mind um, and having the Vendée as a goal, the, the adventure, the challenge, the technology behind it, uh, as well as the actual race itself. You see some absolutely incredible things. 
it's like when um, Mallory climbed Everest and he got asked why on earth he did it. Um, and he just replied, because it's there. Uh, we don't really learn more about humans. We don't really le- get gold or um, money. It's about the actual challenge. And I think that's what really draws me to it. Um, it's that challenge and beauty of what the race offers. Now, you've mentioned uh, you know, raising the money. Do you think it's more about being a businessman than a sailor? It depends who you talk to. Um, I've, uh, through the past couple of years, meeting um, people on both sides of the coin, the, the guys who raise the funding and the guys who actually sail the boats. And you ask 100 people, you get 100 different answers. Personally, though, I think having a business mind is essential. Um, you mentioned the 2020 vision. Just tell me a little bit more about what that is. So last at the beginning of this year, uh, Whitecap, who run the Amoka 60 Artemis, uh, approached the owner, Artemis, saying that we wanted to get a Brit to the sailors, a Brit to the start of the Vendée in 2020. Uh, if you look at the trend in 2008, there, there were eight skippers on the start line. This year, there's just one, Alex. So they, Alex Thompson. Yeah, yeah. Uh, so they approached them and said, can we use the boat as a training platform to develop the talent and whittle it down from 10 British sailors down to the one in 2020 who will sail the boat around the world. What is your sailing background? Were you a dinghy sailor or, or what? I started, well, as most people do, uh, bashing around on a bathtub uh, in Singapore. The optimist, I should probably say. Uh, and then because we moved to Shanghai, moved up into yachts and then came over to Southampton to do my university degree in naval architecture. So uh, got introduced to a chap who owned a Figaro that had been modified and started doing offshores, the Rourke offshores, Fastnet, uh, around Britain, Ireland. Uh, and that's how I managed both my sailing passion and the degree. It's interesting, isn't it? Because so many of the top sailors in the uh, Vande are real all-rounders. So they're not just great sailors, um, but they're businessmen, as we've touched on already. But also, as you mentioned, uh, they're boat designers as well. So, and, and you need that knowledge, really, just to survive out there on your own for three months. Certainly. I mean, you, you really need to be a master of all trades, not just a jack of all. Because, uh, I mean, anything can go wrong. You, you need to be the electrician to fix the uh, instruments. You need to be the boat builder to fix the boat. Um, so having that understanding, however you gain it, uh, is invaluable. Okay, Conrad, uh, very best of luck. And I guess if anyone's out there uh, with a huge pot of money uh, to get in touch. Certainly. Uh, that'd be amazing. Dreams come true. Uh, but the best way to actually keep in keep touch and uh, updated on what I'm doing is to check out Facebook, uh, Conrad Manning Racing. And you're on Twitter as well? Twitter, Instagram, YouTube, you name it. Uh, it's all different platforms with all sorts. Uh, you're all over it, Conrad. <laughs> Very best of luck. Thanks for talking to us and uh, we'll catch up again soon. See how you're getting on. Thank you. Look forward to it. Now, literally, whilst we've been recording this podcast, we've received the breaking news, tragic news, that the US Coast Guard has called off its search for China's most famous sailor, Gao Chun. He was attempting to break the speed record for crossing the Pacific from San Francisco to Shanghai. Uh, his trimaran has been found drifting on its own off Hawaii by the Coast Guard. So a very, very sad day. 
I interviewed Gore many times, in fact, the last time, as part of the Sailing Uncovered live show at the London Boat Show earlier this year. But uh, what I'll always remember is his big, beaming smile, uh, beaming from the Green Dragon boat as it docked at the end of the legs of the Volvo Ocean Race, uh, what, back in 2009. Whenever they finished, wherever they finished, no matter how tired he was or how tough a passage they'd had, he was always smiling and happy to talk to the camera. Um, A very sad day indeed. Our thoughts are with his team and, of course, uh, with his young family. And what a stark reminder it is of the dangers faced by ocean sailors. And that is Sailing Uncovered for this month. Uh, Thanks to Dee Kafari and Conrad Manning for joining us. This is Alec Wilkinson for this month saying goodbye and thanks for listening to Sailing Uncovered.